is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. In for Mike Simpson today, I'm Chris Seaton. And I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden making history today, announcing the release of one million barrels of oil per day from the country's strategic petroleum reserve for the next six months. The goal? To reduce record high gas prices. We'll go in-depth into whether this plan is actually going to work. The White House says it's hearing Vladimir Putin's own advisors are basically lying to him about the war in Ukraine. We look into why and what that means for possible peace. And we'll head to Poland to talk to a veterinarian from San Diego who is there taking care of pets and other animals impacted by the war. Well, the actor Will Smith facing discipline over his slap at the Oscars will go in-depth on how the fallout will impact his career and what he can do to clean up the mess that he created. The pandemic is having a major impact on attendance at schools in L.A. and across California, even though we're moving closer to the, the old normal. New reports say the federal investigation into Hunter Biden is heating up now. We look into whether the president's son could get indicted. Aliens are... Are they really out there? Are they here? <laughs> One astronomer, astron- astronomer from Harvard says yes. Oh. I hope they're not. I hope they're not like right here because I wouldn't know what to say to them. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. what would you say? Like, hello, I guess. <laughs> hello, Mr. Alien. Yeah. We start, though, with President Biden and gas prices. Where this is Ryan Kellogg, professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. He focuses on the oil and gas sectors and environmental policy. Thanks for being with us. So the president's idea, not idea, I guess it's his order, to release a million barrels per day sounds like a lot to the average person. Is it and is it enough? Yeah, a million sure sounds like a really big number. It's important to keep in context, one, world oil consumption is 100 million barrels a day. We're talking about a release of 1 million barrels a day. U.S. consumption is about 20 million barrels a day. Um, Is this going to have a big effect on prices? It's not going to be big. It's also not going to be zero. It looks like crude oil prices have fallen by something like 5% since the announcement. Again, that's not nothing. Does that make up for the supply shortfall that's been caused by the invasion? No, it doesn't. The running estimate from the International Energy Administration is that sort of Russian supply has been cut off to the tune of maybe 3 million barrels a day. That's bigger than one. There's just, you know, releasing oil from the strategic reserves. Is it going to lower prices a little bit? Yes. Is it going to take things back to where they were before the invasion or before people were even worried about the invasion? No. Ryan, there are those who will argue that this is a political move. Not more, nothing more than that. Your take. Yeah, so... It is going to decrease prices. You're not going to see prices fall at the pump immediately. It usually takes a couple of weeks for shocks, for changes in crude oil prices to pass on through to prices you see at the pump when you're driving out or when you're out driving around. Um, but this fall in the crude oil price that's happened over the past 24 hours, five, six, seven dollars a barrel, um, that's eventually going to work its way through to to gasoline prices. Um, and I would expect there to be a modest and, and modest decrease in prices at decrease in prices at the time. But okay. again, you know, it's not gonna sort of put things back to what people were used to last year. Right. So 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 the, the, the president, as you know, besides uh, having this uh, one million barrels a day of oil being released, he's also uh, insisting or or at least pleading, I suppose it depends on your point of view, with oil companies to start pumping 
getting more oil out of the ground. Uh, now, there are a couple of issues with that one. One, are the oil companies going to listen? And two, what about the environmental impact? Yeah, so there's really nothing the administration can do to get private companies to get more oil out of the ground. Most U.S. oil and gas is actually produced off of private land, not land owned by the U.S. government. A lot of the shale oil boom happened on private land. Prices are high now. Firms are going to be interested in drilling more, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more drilling, more production from wells. That's going to take time though. It takes months to get a to get a rig on site, drill more holes in the ground and actually meaningfully increase production. A year from now where we're going to see more oil being pumped? Yeah, sure. Um, it's not something you're going to see tomorrow. And there's really nothing Biden or any president could really do about that. In your opinion, is he right in calling for Congress to demand these companies pay fees for the wells that have not been used for years? Uh, so for federal land, honestly, even something like that probably wouldn't make too much of a difference on the, on the supply front, um, in part because so little oil and gas production in the U.S. is coming from onshore federal land. If there's federal land that companies have rights to but haven't drilled, the reason they haven't drilled is probably because the land's not all that productive anyway. Um, so I wouldn't expect a move like that. To really sort of move the needle in the, in the near term on, on oil supply. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, when KNX In-Depth continues, a veterinarian from Southern California is in Poland taking care of animals from Ukraine. And coming up on the show, the Board of Governors for the Oscars, still trying to figure out how to discipline Will Smith, but has the slab done enough damage to his reputation already? And we talked to an astronomer from a Harvard University who says aliens are real and probably have already visited Earth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, right now, people are not the only ones who need help in Ukraine. Their pets and other animals need care and medical attention as the war rages on. Veterinarian Dr. Gary Weitzman is president of the San Diego Humane Society. He is now in Poland on a mission to provide care for animals and to set up a border crossing veterinary clinic. Dr. Weitzman is with us now. Doctor, thanks for being uh, with us from Poland. Uh, So tell us what the situation is. We've heard so much about uh, the human tide that has been crossing from Ukraine into Poland and then dispersing elsewhere. Tell us about pets. Yeah, hi. Um, it's it's uh, been good to get over here finally to see it for myself and to see if there's any way for us to help. Uh, the animals haven't been forgotten by the people in Ukraine. Uh, many of them are bringing their animals across. Uh, that's been becoming more and more difficult as uh, restrictions have increased because some of them have been bringing anywhere from two to 20 animals. So the Polish authorities have gotten a little concerned about that and cut it down to two animals per person to bring across the border. So that's causing other issues on the other side where animals may be um, may be abandoned on the Ukraine border. But the ones that we're seeing here in Poland now are actually in pretty good shape. They're stressed. You know, the people are stressed. It's just a horrible situation any way you look at it. But the animals are in really good shape, the ones that are coming over. I guess um, for me, the sobering part is, not knowing what's happening to the animals that are left behind. Right. And uh, it's a pretty grim um, story to tell, I think. Yeah, Doctor, what exactly are you doing? Share with us your mission plan. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been working with the International Fund for Animal Welfare, otherwise known as IFA, and they set up um, a, basically a, it's small but very powerful right in that uh, border crossing camp where everybody's coming through. It's really a, one of the first tents that people see. It's a medical tent and there's supplies for people with their pets if they need carriers for cats or if they need leashes and muzzles, uh, some basic veterinary supplies that we can use here. Um, we're, we're doing all of that right at the border for people when they're coming across. And of course, lots and lots and lots of dog and cat food and bird food. And, you know, we've seen everything uh, from ferrets to snails. Yeah, really, somebody brought over pet snails. Wait, 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 wait. Someone, hold on. Someone brought <laughs> a pet snail? Snail? Yeah, I'm, I'm not kidding. You know, you got to love that, though. She raised a snail from a snail lit, I guess, you know, and <laughs> wow. my, my um, medical background doesn't go very far into mollusk territory but she this was her pet and she brought him across or her i don't know across the border but you know on the more um regular side of things we're seeing lots and lots of cats and dogs coming too and they're in they're really in good physical shape their mental shape is what we're the most worried about now. you know and, and i was just going to ask you about that 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 people i think sometimes dismiss the fact that animals pets might have their own trauma because of this war and being displaced and moving from, uh, you know, an environment they're used to. And perhaps before they left Ukraine, they were hearing explosions because we've talked to lots and lots of, of people who have uh, fled Ukraine telling us about how disturbing it was to them just nightly hearing the bombardment. Tell us a little bit about the psychological issues that these animals seem to be going through and how do you deal with it? Yeah, it's really unbelievable for both the people and the animals. So if you think about it, these animals, yeah, they've, they've experienced everything that people have. They might not know consciously or, you know, they might not really understand what those noises represent, whereas people do. So it can add a little bit more horror on the human side. But for the animals, it's the uncertainty and the unknown. It's loud noises and and smells. And, and you know, obviously there's lots of injured. There's injured animals as well. Animals without limbs that we've heard about. I haven't seen any of the animals that have been injured. They've been taken care of on the Ukraine side for the most part. But these animals have gone through everything that people have without any concept of what is happening. So they're they're pretty terrorized. They're they're pretty stressed. And then compounded by thinking, you know, there's 50% of these animals coming across the companion side um, they're, they're cats. 50% are cats. 50% are dogs. People are just carrying their cats. And I, I'm astonished. You know, as a vet, I look at these cats and I think, you know, if they were in San Diego, there's no way someone would, a cat would stay still in someone's arms. But coming across um, a war zone border, these cats are just, you know, being held and, and behaving. Uh, so we're getting them carriers and harnesses and all sorts of things to try to calm them down. Um, they're They're really in surprisingly good shape once they've come yeah. across the border though doctor what about strays i understand you have a dog named slava there tell us about slava oh slava yes you know slava ukraine the the um the cry for peace uh, from the ukraine side uh slava means glory and this dog uh, was found um we found this dog this morning and he had been wandering the streets and the there's small highways here and he's been wandering the highways 
And it's been fairly good weather for March in Poland, but it's really getting cold today and rain nonstop for the last 36 hours and then snow coming. So we wanted to get that dog. So we cooked him with a bowl of food and kibble. And honestly, the, the woman I was, I've been with, um, her name is Diane. She, she's an animal control officer in Massachusetts and she was just amazing. Um, I'd like to say we got that dog, but she got that dog, but I got to take care of him once, once we got him. And, mm-hmm. And that was really great. Uh, one quick question. I'm curious. Have you ever done anything like this in, in your career? I mean, there couldn't be anything farther from San Diego, where I guess yeah. you practice, to what you're doing now. You know what? Honestly, guys, um, I think that question could go for everybody here, whether or not they're a victim of this of this disaster or someone trying to help make it better. Nobody has gone through anything like this in their lives before. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Weitzman, thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Again, that's veterinarian Dr. Gary Weitzman, president of the San Diego Humane Society, joining us from Poland. And coming up, lots of kids in L.A. are chronically absent now, and the pandemic seems to be the biggest reason why. And if you believe in aliens and that and who they, doesn't, and, who doesn't <laughs> and, and that they have uh, visited Earth, you're not alone. A Harvard astronomer believes it, too. Right now, though, the White House says U.S. intelligence officials have determined Vladimir Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about his military's performance in Ukraine. The intel says that they're apparently scared to give him bad news. Matthew Schmidt is a Russia expert and professor of national security, international affairs and political science at the University of New Haven. He's worked with the Senate and House Armed Service Committee and members of Congress as a consultant on strategic planning. Uh, Matthew, thank you for joining us today. First of all, why are these advisors lying to Putin if, in fact, they really are? Uh, Because it's an authoritarian system, right? Putin's to blame for his own mess here. Um, What happens with these guys is is they, they have no way out. Uh, it's unsafe for them to tell Putin uh, what they think he doesn't want to hear, and they can't just resign if they disagree with his policies. They're trapped and their families are at risk. Um, and so all of this together means that you, um, you know, don't necessarily tell the truth, even if you're not fully lying. Here's what I don't uh, quite understand. Uh, you know, censorship, as you know, is pretty heavy in Russia right about now, and, and the average person does not have access to uh, a free flow of information, I presume that Vladimir Putin does, uh, that he could watch and listen to anything he wants to watch and listen to. So why isn't he getting all this information elsewhere? Of course, he could do that, but his own psychology is, in essence, you know, preventing him from doing it, right? We all, we all know situations where we don't want to open up that envelope um, and see what's inside. And that's essentially the position that he's in. And you have to understand also that this is akin to something, someone sort of being racist, right? Which, which Putin essentially is against Ukrainians here, where he's got a worldview and he's just not willing to see what's outside of that worldview. He just doesn't believe that something outside of, of how he sees the world could even be true and therefore even be worth his time. Well, what does this say about Vladimir Putin's state of mind? He's rational. He's not crazy. Um, but he has a different kind of reasoning that he follows logically. He goes from his A to his B to his C, right, um, which is the definition of rationality. But it's not, it's not a system of reasoning that we agree with, right? It's like having that crazy uncle at dinner that we call crazy. But he's actually quite rational. He just, has a, he just sees the world in a logical way that we don't agree with. We think his logic is in error, but it's still logical. 
What about this contrarian point of view, which I'm sure you're you're familiar with, which is that uh, Putin is crazy like a fox uh, and that he uh, it isn't that he's not getting the information that he should be getting, but that he's following a game plan that he always wanted to follow, which is essentially to end up with the eastern portion of of Ukraine and to, in his point of view, uh, hopefully cut off. Uh, the access of the rest of Ukraine to uh, the sea. And so all this other stuff is just a bunch of people guessing that uh, he's getting bad information. Uh, I, I generally disagree with everything that you said. Uh, Putin is not a strategic genius. His basic approach to things is that when, when the situation doesn't look the way he wants it to, he creates chaos. He breaks things, and then he's good at finding targets of opportunity, right? In the, in the float sam of whatever he's breaking, he looks for things to then make his next move again. But he's not particularly good about planning out, you know, move one, two, three, and seven um, in order. Uh, it, it, you know, it's the bulk of my work that suggests that Putin, for instance, this isn't about NATO. This isn't about Ukraine being a NATO. Missiles, missiles don't reach Moscow any faster from Ukraine than they would from Estonia, which is already a NATO country, right? And it's a misunderstanding of modern war if he's even worried at all about NATO's intentions, right? If he thinks NATO wants to take Moscow, well, he's just stupid, right? <laughs> the, the real thing that he wants, though, is to, is to rebuild this sort of Russian world, this, this cultural space in Eurasia that is anti-Western, that uh, breaks our values, that is anti-democratic, right? And that he believes he has sort of a divine mission to create in order to keep this Russian viewpoint um, you know, as in something that's important in human history. He wants to, he, he feels like that space collapsed when the Soviet Union went down and he's trying to preserve it. And that's what this war is about. Ukraine is the center of being able to, 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 uh, achieve that manifest destiny, right? And that's what this is about. And that's why he's hard to deter. All right. Matthew, thank you so much for your perspective. Again, that's Matthew Schmidt, Russia expert, joining us from the University of New Haven. This is KNX In-Depth with proceedings in today from Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which runs the Oscars, still deciding what to do about Will Smith and that slapping of Chris Rock on Sunday. It's already said it asked Smith to leave the show after the slap, but it says he refused. But TMZ cites a source saying that's not true, that the Academy never asked Smith to leave, but nonetheless... The Academy could still punish Smith. So how does he rehab his image if he can? Nate Miller is a communication strategist, crisis PR expert and founder and CEO of the PR firm Miller Inc. Nate, thanks for being with us. Let me expand the, the question to include more than just how does Will Smith rehab his image? Because it seems to to many people as if there are a lot of images that were tarnished by what happened on Sunday night from from Will Smith, you know, slapping Chris uh, Rock to the Academy, whether they did or didn't ask the guy to, to leave, to the big stars standing, giving uh, a standing ovation for several minutes to a man who had just assaulted somebody on live global television. How does all of that, how does all of that get rectified? Can it? Thank, well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, this is a train wreck. I, I totally agree. It's a, it's a really interesting case study in how you don't do crisis management um, in so many ways. <laughs> I, I think just the first principle that I really try to advise clients is that 
this is more true than it's ever been, which is that authenticity is everything when it comes to responding to a, to a situation where, where, where you're perceived to be at fault. And, um, and, and, and kind of half apologies or half explanations or, or um, you know, in the way that, 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 that Will Smith responded, um, they're just not gonna, they're not gonna cut the mustard here. And, you know, if I was his publicist and I, I saw reports that, that his publicist actually spoke with him before he spoke, I mean, you know, it's hard to know what happens inside of those conversations. I, I, I would have been really clear that you have to address um, Chris Rock directly and say, and, and say, I'm sorry that, you know, I'm, I, that was a, that was a lapse. That was a huge lapse of judgment. And I, you know, violence is never acceptable, whatever you said to me. Um, and I, you know, he, he's since said that. Um, it, another word on, on, you know, and I, I think the public is looking for somebody there will, you, you're allowed to make a mistake, but when you, when you try to apologize or, or, or walk something back, you've got to do it in a way that feels true and authentic and you actually believe it. Um, and I think the statement that he put out on Instagram separately is, is also, you know, it was just a written statement. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a, a if, if I was, you know, it's clearly that it was probably written by someone else and maybe approved by him and put up on Instagram, but it just didn't have that feeling of true contrition and authenticity. Okay, but, I, but I'm curious, uh, as somebody who gives advice to people, um, would you give him the advice? Because there's all this discussion now, will the Academy yank his award? But rather than have that happen, would you give the advice to Will Smith that maybe what he ought to do is give back the award? get the academy off the hook and say look i'm sorry that this ever happened uh it was inexcusable and if in the future i'm ever in another project that you think is deserving of an academy award at that point in time i'll gladly accept it would that be the advice you might give yeah you know you'd want to look at the context right so if I don't ever, what I always do with clients is I give them, here's what's what's most likely to happen. And you think about a spectrum of different probabilities or outcomes. So the advantage of doing that is there's, you know, it kind of shuts down the debate on this problem. People aren't going to be saying, is he going to be kicked out or is he not? And does that drag out? And is there a whole, you know, review process and everything else? And you kind of avoid that. You just kind of, you know, push it out and move on. But but I, I don't know that I would, I, I would advise that necessarily right out the gate. Um, well, I, you know, I think what the, the most important thing as opposed to giving back the award or anything like this is for Will Smith to come out and, and be truly contrite and, and, and to convincingly talk about why this was a mistake or what happened or what was going through his head. Well, Nate, let me, um, let me follow, let me follow up on then. He, you know, he did get, he had a six minute acceptance speech where he apologized to the Academy and the fellow nominees that was on Oscar night. Then the next day he put out that, uh, uh, it was a tweet or on Instagram apologizing for his behavior uh, and aiming it towards Chris Rock saying I, he apologized to him. I guess what I'm wondering is, is it time for him to do a sit-down interview, a Barbara Walters type uh, sit-down yeah. interview, and be contrite and 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 speak speak to people. Yeah, I think he needs to give them more than he gave them on Instagram yesterday. And I don't think the Oscar speech was. I don't think that was acceptable. I don't think that met the bar for what happened. But how do you for, know, Nate? Saw, but, but but here's a question that I think uh, someone in the audience may have. How do you know? So he sits down, to, to Chris's point, he sits down with, with uh, whomever, and he does a, an interview uh, to be contrite. I mean, you know, it's not like a politician or a layperson. The guy is, after all, a Academy Award winning now actor. How do you know he's really being contrite? 
I think you have to get, you have to bring the, the audience in that what was going through your mind at that moment, how did it happen? And, and you have to share more than maybe you're comfortable sharing sometimes, you know, when it comes to making a big mistake like you made. Um, and, you know, there, there are times when, it's, when less is more. This is not one of those times in my, you know, from my point of view. And, you know, the, 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 the big missed opportunity was when he accepted the award, where I think he really, that, that, that to me is almost, the, from, a, from a PR perspective, almost the bigger issue than what happened when he slapped Chris Rock in some ways. Okay. Um, you know, um, because you could say in that moment, I lost control of myself. I, you know, my emotions got a hold of me. My wife was really, you know, in pain and, you know, this horrible thing was said about her and I just, I couldn't control it. But he had plenty of time to think about what he wanted to say that night. And it, you know, and he kind of got up there at that point and then, and didn't really, you know, tried to justify it in some ways and to, to frame it. And, and I, and I, I think that for the majority of folks, probably it just, I, I don't think it, it, it landed great. Yeah. About 45 um, minutes. In fact, Nate, we'll have to leave yeah. it there. Thank you so much for your time. Nate Miller, communication strategist. Uh, he is the founder of Irma Miller Inc. The pandemic has upended so many lives the past two years. One of the hardest hit groups, kids. A new analysis from the L.A. Times finds nearly half of kids in the L.A. school district have been chronically absent this school year. Now, that means they have missed at least 9% of the academic year. This comes after a study found nearly 30% of students in districts around the state were chronically absent this school year. That compared to nearly 13% two years earlier. With us, uh, we've got uh, Tyrone Howard, education professor and director of the UCLA Pritzker Center for Strengthening Children and Families, and Brenda Tapp, national training manager for School Innovations and Achievement, which conducted the uh, statewide uh, study, and uh, Tony Wold, chief business official and in residence for School Innovations and Achievement. Uh, Tyrone, let's start with you on this issue. How is the pandemic playing a role in attendance problems? Let's be clear. It's playing a significant role because we're still seeing the effects of uh, families who are still fearful of the virus. We are seeing children who suffered academically at the early stages of the pandemic who uh, are, are able to catch up or can't catch up. We're seeing families who still don't want to send young children to school, so they're asking older children to stay at home with them. Uh, we are seeing the economic fallout because you've got families who now require or ask young people to go to work uh, and, and provide additional employment. So, yes, the pandemic has, has its, sort of, its, its fingers or its wrapped all around these numbers, and they're deeply, deeply disturbing. Brenda, were you surprised at the outcome of the study, or was it kind of what you anticipated? It's what we anticipated. Um, and unfortunately, we're, as much as we hoped attendance was going to start increasing and improving after our Omicron wave that just passed through, we're not seeing that yet. Uh, so we know we have a easily five to 10 year problem ahead of us, and it's not going to be fixed overnight. Tony Wold, uh, what groups of children are being impacted the most? I think the biggest impact is going to be seen in our second and third graders. They have yet to have a normal year of school. We know that all of the key indicators are you want to be reading by third grade. So a lot of our focus has got to be to rebuild and build new habits that they've never actually had a real school year. So our youngest students are where we've got to put our focus. California is already focused on early literacy. We need to focus on reconnecting that group 
and bringing them forward before we have a generational problem. Well, uh, Tyrone, back to you. I mean, Tony is saying that we need to do this and we need to do that. The question is, are we doing all that? Yeah, I think that districts are trying. Uh, the district is trying, but we, we're talking about a, a ship that's got multiple holes in it that we're trying to plug in. So I think focusing on our, our youngest learners makes lots of sense. But there are also young people who are making critical transitions to high school who have not had a regular high school experience. Young people who are making a transition to middle school who are not having a traditional middle school experience. So schools are trying to help with these critical transitions. But the reality is many of them are still not adequately equipped with the folks who are needed, you know, social workers, psychologists, counselors who can play a role in that. We've got tremendous resources that have come into the district because of the pandemic. But in many of the high need areas, it's still not enough. And even when those dollars dry up and they're gone, the problems will still linger, which will leave schools in an even more compromising position. Well, Brenda Tapia, it was your group that conducted this statewide study. Let's take that same question to you. What should the focus be on right now? Really, I think the focus needs to be on communicating with families and connecting with those students. And that's what we're seeing. You need to be communicating in a way that's that's driving those connections. We're seeing a lot of disconnection from uh, families and students from the campus uh, due to the amount of time they were out. Um, But even going back to that transition through middle school, if you think about where our kids are today, we have seniors who are getting ready to walk down and graduate in just a few months. Their last normal year on campus was as a freshman. So kind of going back to that transition as well. But it is really important that we're communicating with our families um, on the importance of them being in class because of a substantial amount of lost learning that's been occurring. Tony, I'm curious. uh, I'm having difficulty presuming or or believing that this is a a California problem. This must be something that's happening all around the country because school districts all over the country had pretty much the same impact because of the pandemic. No, this is absolutely a national issue. And I I think you saw in the quotes from the new superintendent, LA Unified, where he is personally taking 30 of those chronic attendance students and reaching out to them. And he's starting a campaign, Attendance Matters. We believe that nationally we're seeing the same thing. I can tell you in California, enrollment dropped 160,000 in two years, but ADA, the average daily attendance has dropped 500,000 as of December, and it's dropping even more in January. Every school district in the nation due to Omicron was dropping down to 60, 50, 70% attendance on a daily basis. This is most definitely a national issue. We have an entire initiative to throw out the last two years and start a brand new motivational focus right now to start building for next year and the following years so that we can get the enthusiasm back. As our other caller said, people are afraid to go to school. We have to start fresh, say what happened happened, and now we've got to build together. I applaud the superintendent. We're ready to help him in any way we can to do exactly what he's saying. Okay. Tony, thank you very much for your perspective. Uh, Tony Wold, we're also joined by uh, Brenda Tapp and uh, Tyrone Howard in this conversation. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens and for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Spelter. Well, we talked yesterday about the Washington Post story about Hunter Biden's business dealings in China. Now new reports say the uh, federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings is broader than previously known. CBS News says the investigation is looking into whether Biden, Hunter Biden, and his associates violated tax, money laundering, and foreign lobbying laws. Uh, is an indictment possible? 
Ari Rastinger is an attorney and legal analyst and joins us now. Ari, thanks for being with us. Uh, you know, I, I was just doing a quick during the commercial break look through history, if you will, uh, about the children of, uh, you know, presidents. And throughout history, many presidents had kids that did all kinds of weird stuff and caused social scandals, that sort of thing. But I couldn't find any examples of, of any president who had a child uh, that might be on the verge of an indictment. Is that an easy move? I would imagine it wouldn't be for a prosecutor. I think I think you put it pretty lightly, uh, having a, a social disruptance uh, versus uh, being behind funding a company that is that is deliberately creating pathogens for global pandemics, I think is uh, not to be discussed with the same cadence. No, no, no. But that, but that's exactly my point, that, that in looking through history, I couldn't come up with another example of a, a president whose child might be on the cusp of being indicted in a criminal offense. They have kids that have done all kinds of weird stuff, but this is a, a kind of cat, something that's in a category of category of its own, right? Certainly, it's certainly in a category of its own, and you know, obviously, you know, our hearts go out to all the people in in Ukraine that are that are suffering from this, you know, tremendous calamity. But you know, in a lot of ways, they they tried the media tried to spin this to be fake news. And we now know that there is, you know, true hard evidence um, that shows that, I mean, just just his company alone, Rosemont, put in $500,000 into what was a known, you know, corrupt, quote unquote, gas firm. I believe it's called uh, Burisma. And I mean, the, the amount of evidence is so overwhelming. And the thing that's especially disturbing, you know, we also, you know, always have a tremendous respect you know, for the office of the presidency and would never, you know, try to, you know, understand, you know, the, the difficulties and the nuances of, of running, um, you know, of running our great country. But besides that, this news was all out before President Biden was even elected. And so what's especially disturbing is as you get deeper and deeper into these details, it looks more and more nefarious to where, um, I think this is more than an indictment. I think you're looking at uh, possible, you know, terroristic Im- uh, implications, which are, um, you know, clearly uh, pretty, pr- pretty grave um, accusations what? that now are backed in serious evidence. Army, let, uh, Army, let me ask you this. How important will it be for Merrick Garland to take strong action if this case in this case, if needed? Look, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, tell him exact, exactly how to do you know, to, to do the, to do the job. But to me, this is a, uh, this is a level 10, <laughs> you know, th- this is code red of what we're talking about here. And I would expect massive, massive action taken. But what do you mean? You, you mentioned in, in passing, uh, sort of a, a, a terrorism connection, if I heard you right, how do you, how do you fit that in here in this? When, when you're talking about when you're talking about funding companies after us coming out of, you know, thank God, nearing, I guess, what a lot of experts are calling the endemic, you know, to the COVID-19 pandemic, you're funding a company that is known for creating, quote unquote, pathogens that would be cause a global pandemic, that has caused the lives, you know, cost the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. If that is not terroristic, I don't know what is. 
You know, in scanning the different news channels last night, uh, I was watched watched them all. I was on Fox News for a while, where they were really going in depth on this. And they this they say that this is a story they've been on for a long time, and that it's been uh, more or less just kind of pushed aside by uh, lawmakers and the media alike. Your take on that? Look, I think that's politics. You know, that's spin doctoring and politicking. You know, that that's really what that comes down to. Clearly, the people that are here and. Um, the, the president and the people that are all involved in this, these are very big names, very powerful names that have tremendous amounts of political capital that extend way beyond, you know, uh, the White House, so to speak, goes into the media. And, you know, who knows how deep the rabbit hole, you know, actually goes. But now, you know, evidence people look, everybody's entitled to their own opinions. That's fine. But you're not entitled to your own facts. Right. But but, but you mentioned the evidence is overwhelming. All right. But, but you did. You mentioned the president uh, and both The Washington Post and the CBS reporting went out of their way to say that they had, as of yet anyway, not uncovered any evidence that would link uh, the father to the son, in this case, the yeah. president to the son. And look, I, and I and I have yet to see that evidence as well. And by no means are, you know, would I make any implications direct or you know indirect until there's, you know, evidence and God forbid that there is. And, you know, my my hope and um, my prayer is that absolutely the president, certainly any president of the United States of America would never be involved in something like this. You know, Hunter Biden clearly has suffered from a, a variety of, you know, mental health issues, addiction issues. I think there's some allegations of you know, smoking crack and things like that. And again, you know, we are not, um, you know, beholden to the you know sins of our children or vice versa. But, you know, we've known that this is a loose cannon for very long. And quite frankly, at the very least, the president was aware through various news, app- news outlets and other uh, pieces of research that Hunter was involved in Ukraine in some way, shape or another. The depth of that, who knows? I pray to God he didn't know any of it. And my hope is that he didn't. Um, But at the very least, you know, you can't have, you know, uh, plausible deniability. This goes way beyond that. Okay, Ari, thank you again. That's attorney and legal analyst Ari Rastegar. Well, maybe you've channel surfed and stumbled upon TV shows talking about aliens visiting Earth. And there are ideas that aliens helped, you know, build the pyramids and Stuff like that. Yeah. Often the the idea of aliens visiting us here on Earth uh, gets dismissed as conspiracy theories. But what if we told you an esteemed astronomer and theoretical physicist from an esteemed university shares the idea that aliens have likely visited Earth? Well, he's with us now. Harvard University professor Avi Loeb, uh, former chair of the university's Department of Astronomy and author of the book Extraterrestrial, Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. Uh, Sir, welcome. Do you believe aliens have, in fact, visited Earth? Well, let's uh, start with the facts. We know that uh, about half of the sun-like stars uh, have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So what we find in our backyard is not unique or special. And most of the stars form billions of years before the sun. So, you know, Albert Einstein was probably not the smartest scientist that ever lived since the Big Bang. Uh, it's most likely that there was a scientist on another planet around another star a billion years ago and the, the civilization that benefited from uh, the, the discoveries of that scientist uh, sent probes that could have reached us uh, in a billion years for sure. And the way to find out is not uh, by arguing about it, but simply by looking up. And uh, we haven't looked for equipment from extraterrestrials um, 
uh, until uh, the last decade, actually. And there was a first telescope that was capable of seeing something the size of a football field that started looking about a decade ago. And in 2017, discovered the, the first object from outside the solar system. And it looked really weird. Didn't look like a comet or an asteroid we, we are familiar with. So to me, it was a wake-up call. And that is why... Uh, I think we should continue the search. And uh, I currently lead the Galileo project, uh, whose goal is to lead that search. Okay, but I, I think it was Carl Sagan who, who once said years ago uh, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. So in your mind, is there anything that even comes close to, to proof uh, other than conjecture that logically uh, it would seem as if with those billions of stars and billions of planetary systems, it might be likely that somebody once paid a visit. No, it's not conjecture. What I'm saying is there was a wake-up call. We saw the first object from outside the solar system and it looked weird. Okay. Yes, but isn't that... But no, no, wait, no. wait a second, wait a second. I completely disagree with Carl Sagan because extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. If you're not <laughs> conducting the search, if you claim right. until the evidence falls in my lap, I will not engage in it, you will never find it. But the object, so, I, I get it, but, but the object that you're talking about, uh, isn't that a, a matter of great dispute uh, within your own profession? That, that a lot well, of let, let me explain what the dispute is about. I'm saying the object was weird. Other people are saying, no, it's probably a rock, but of a type that we've never seen before. So it's a rock made of pure hydrogen, or it's a rock made of pure nitrogen. We've never seen nature make such rocks, and it's definitely not similar to any of the rocks we've seen before. Now, my point is there are problems with each of these proposals that were made by the alternatives to a, an artificial origin. You know, one of them was that it's a dust bunny, a collection of dust particles. Think about it, the size of a football field. We don't know if nature makes such things. These are the alternatives. When you say disputes, the dispute is between a rock of a type that we've never seen before and something artificial. The only way to settle that dispute is rather than argue, just collect better data. Take a high-resolution image of the next object that comes along. I'm saying it's the first object and it already looks weird. Let's just do the search. And this search was not done. You know, you can sit at home and say, I don't have any neighbors. My point is, in order to see your neighbors, you have to look through the windows. <laughs> okay. True enough. Sir, True enough. thank you for, for your perspective. Again, that's Harvard University professor Avi Loeb joining us on KNX In-Depth. That'll do it for today's show. Uh, in for Mike Simpson today, I'm Chris Seedens, uh, along with Charles Feldman. We're back again tomorrow 